If you've got your Bibles or some electronic device that will enable you to look up John 20, then please do so. Uh, we're starting a short mini-series uh, towards Easter, the next three weeks, um, from John 20. Uh, it's uh, encounter people who encountered Jesus after the resurrection. And I'm going to be looking at Mary uh, in uh, the next Sunday. Uh, Tim's going to look at the disciples and then Quincy Thomas on Easter Sunday morning. So that's our little mini-series coming up starting today. I think Quincy uh, touched on John 20 last year, uh, first few verses, and I'm going to start from verse 11, particularly looking at Mary, but I'll start reading from verse 1 so we get a bit of context from the whole chapter. So here we go, John 20, starting at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is a cryptic way of saying me, that's John, the writer of the gospel, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. It just says, I'm faster running than Peter is. <laughs> and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman. Now, I don't know whether you've ever done this. I do this sometimes. I normally do it in my head, so I don't know whether it's going to work out loud. But sometimes I'll take a little phrase and emphasize each word at a time. So something like, you know, you must be born again. 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 And, you know, it has a different sort of emphasis. You know the shortest verse in the Bible? Reference? Oh. John 11.35. Very good. Well, we just say Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Or Jesus wept. You know, it has a different feel to it. So I'm going to try it now. And they said to her, woman, why 
are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned round and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. I think there's a whole story between those two verses, isn't there? (laughs) He said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary Magdalene. What do we know about Mary? Well, we know she'd been released from seven demons. Uh, We know that she was a follower of Jesus probably because she'd been released from seven demons by Jesus. We know that she was wealthy, uh, that she was a supporter of Jesus. We don't know how she was wealthy. She may have been a businesswoman. She may have uh, you know, been widowed from uh, a wealthy husband. She may have been you know, wealthy as a family. We don't know, but we know that she was wealthy and she used her money to support Jesus in his ministry as she followed him. Now, we call her Mary Magdalene, but Magdalene wasn't her surname. It wasn't her family name. Uh, she was from Magdala. You know, in those days, they, they had different ways of uh, identifying people. Because there were lots of Marys. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary, the mother of James, and Mary, you know, there were lots of them. So to identify them, they would, you know, identify people in different ways. So, you know, they talked about Jesus of Nazareth and Joseph, the carpenter. And so they identified people. Well, Mary was identified with where she came from, and she may have lived there. She may have been born there, brought up there, but somehow she was identified with Magdala. Now, that place had a bit of a stigma to it. It was known as a place of prostitution. And currently there are films around that would identify Mary Magdalene as a prostitute, which seems a bit harsh. You know, Amsterdam has a red light district, but you're going to get in real trouble if you imagine that everyone who comes from Amsterdam is a prostitute. You know, that doesn't go down well, does it? So Mary is stigmatized with this association. And I say this because I felt God speak to me about names. I had to go to Ashburnham on Friday, and I came, drove out through the back way, and as I was driving along, there was a house, and it had a name outside, and it said, The Old Vicarage. 
And I, it just made me smile because I thought, well, how did that get its name? I guess at some point it was called the Vicarage. And then they built a new Vicarage and wanted to call it, well, now let's not call it the new Vicarage, let's call it the Vicarage. And now we've got two called the Vicarage, so we're going to have to call that one the old Vicarage. Sorry, this is how my mind works when I'm driving. And it just, I, it just made me smile. And then, as I was driving along, I turned the corner and there was this row of cottages, old, probably 100 years old, you know, workmen's cottages, that sort of thing. And there's a sign on it that says, number one, new buildings. And I just, I just laughed. Because I thought, you know, they'd spent all this time making, building these houses. What should we call it? I know what. New buildings, and there they are, 100 years later, still called new buildings. And in that moment, God spoke to me, and he said, there's somebody here, or possibly more, more than one person here, who is stigmatized by a name. And it could be a name that you've been given, uh, that, uh, you know, of a relative that you're struggling with. It could be nicknames that you're given, or names that you're called, but you're struggling with a name, or a name that you're called. And if that's you... I would love to pray for you because I believe God's going to release you from it. Come and see me at the end and I'll happily pray for you. So going back into the text, there was, there was lots of activity at the tomb on Easter Sunday morning. You know, we see a little bit of it from that reading, Mary going early. But actually, in the other Gospels, and there's a reference to the, this uh, time in each of the four Gospels, uh, that... Early, before dawn, a group of women, and Mary was one, came to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices. And as they did so, they were discussing, how are we going to move the stone? How are we going to get access to his body? And then they arrive and they find that they stole, the, stole, the stone has been rolled away. And so then we see, we sort of pick up that bit from John, where Mary goes running off to find Simon and John, and then they come and so on. But why did they go to the tomb to begin with? Well, I mean, we read it. They, they went to anoint Jesus' body with spices. But, you know, there would have been occasions, we've read it in the Gospels previously, that there were times when they couldn't find Jesus. You know, the disciples were looking for him and he disappeared. And, you know, they would have looked in probably houses. They may have gone up into the hills where sometimes he would have gone off quietly to pray. Do you know, I don't think they'd have looked for him in a cemetery because he was alive. But they, they were looking for Jesus in the tomb because they thought he was dead. So the reason they went was unbelief. Because you see, Jesus had taught them that he was going to rise again. The scriptures taught them that he would rise again. But they were looking for him amongst the dead. And there's a hint of it from the things that the angels said. So in Matthew 28, the angel says, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. The angel didn't go, hey, he's alive. It's amazing. You didn't expect that, did you? In fact, almost the opposite. He was saying, you should have expected that. Just as he said. 
And in Luke, he says, why do you seek the living one among the dead? There's an indication they're in the wrong place. And even there's a hint of it in John 20 that we read, that John saw and believed. He came in unbelief, and there was that moment of belief. It came clear to him. Unbelief causes us to see things from a human perspective. They were the things that the angel said on other occasions. What the angel said to Mary, in fact, what was said twice to Mary, was, why are you weeping? Now, angels are messengers from God. They're not sent along to have a bit of a conversation. You know, they're sent with a message. Now, we don't know whether it was the same angel who spoke to the others or whether there was angels coming and going in and out of the tomb at different times as people came and went. But there was, each one had a message, just as he said, the living one among the dead. And why are you weeping? And Jesus said it, although not recognized in that moment, why are you weeping? Is it only me, or does that seem strange? You know, only two days before, her friend had died a horrible death and she'd gone to the tomb to mourn and grieve and they said, why are you weeping? A couple of months ago, earlier this year, Liz and I went to a Thanksgiving service for a friend of ours, Eunice Potter, who died. Uh, she and her husband, Colin, had church planted around the London area. They were based in Orpington more recently and we went along to the Thanksgiving service and I bumped into Colin and I gave him a hug and before I could stop myself, the words came out of my mouth, how are you doing? And in here I'm going, how do you think he's doing? His wife's just died. Bless him, he was a bit more gracious than that and said, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay and, you know, and so on. But, you know, things can come out quite easily, can't they? You know, we say things perhaps without thinking. But the angel was sent with the message, why are you weeping? Jesus didn't ask spurious questions. He asked specific questions for purpose. And he said, why are you weeping? Mary took it as a request for information because she told them why she was weeping. But I don't think that was the reason they asked the question. It wasn't that the, the angel wanted to know. It implies that she shouldn't be weeping or that perhaps there are different reasons for weeping and she needed to identify why she was and which, whether it was right or not. But either way, the fact that she was asked twice indicates to me it must be important. So let's look, let's, let's look at why was Mary weeping. Well, she said it. She was looking for the body of Jesus and she couldn't find him. She had come to anoint his body with spices and to mourn, probably. But you see, as a follower of Jesus, she would have heard his teaching about coming back to life again. Even we see some of it 
You know, in a little while, you will not see me, and then you will see me. But she hadn't made the connection. She hadn't joined the dots. She didn't believe. Maybe she had great hopes of freedom, of freedom of, uh, from the oppression of the Romans, and that was completely dashed when he died. Maybe she was thinking about all the things that he had done while he was alive. She would have seen and experienced amazing miracles. Blind eyes opened. Deaf ears unstopped. Lame people walking. Demons released even from her. She experienced it herself. All of those things were done when Jesus was alive. And now he was dead. So those things are not going to happen anymore. From the triumphal entry through to Jesus' death on a cross was just a few days. And it must have been devastating for her and for those other disciples. You know, it's, it's so much easier for us from a distance 2,000 years later. You know, we've had centuries of well, we haven't had centuries of teaching, but, you know, there has been centuries of teaching. We can see the experiences that they went through. We can read it. We can point the finger and say, well, you should have done this or you should have done that. But for Mary and those followers, his death was so unexpected. But nevertheless, they had received the teaching and they didn't believe. Were there reasons why she should have been weeping? Well, if she had realized why Jesus died. You see, Jesus didn't die because the crowd chose Barabbas. Jesus died because God sent him to take our sin away. And if she had realized that actually Jesus was on the cross, because of her. It was her fault. Not only her, it was my fault as well. But when you realize that, as it was my fault that Jesus hung on the cross, there's cause for weeping. That it was the only way mankind could be reconciled back to God. That's a cause for weeping. That the sinless one should give his life for the sinful ones, is a reason for weeping. But let's look at why she shouldn't have been weeping, which is the implication of the question. If she had realized that Jesus was risen, not that the body had been stolen or that it had been moved and it needed to be looked for, but that it had risen from the dead, that's a reason not to be weeping. You see, the resurrection changes everything. It validates his sacrifice for our sins because the power of God is greater than the result of our sin, namely death. Death is conquered. The curse that was upon us is broken completely because of the resurrection. 
Paul puts it, as it were, in reverse in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, forget it. It's all over. But all the things that Jesus did are now possible again because he's alive. You see, he was alive when he performed those miracles. He was alive when he cast the demons out of Mary. He was alive when he raised the young boy from the dead. He was alive when the lame people were walking. And he's alive again. So those things are possible. And with the coming of the Spirit, they're possible for us. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in us. That's you and me. And those things are possible once again. Moving on, Jesus speaks her name. And things change for Mary when Jesus speaks her name. Now, some of the commentators say that it's because the way he said her name caused her to think, oh, it sounds like Jesus. You know, she, he, she would have heard him say her name previously, you know, when, as a follower. And so there was something about the way he said it. Well, maybe that's true. But the point is, the revelation that this was Jesus came at that moment. And revelation is in God's sovereign hands. So we know there was another occasion a little bit like this where two guys were on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus after the resurrection. And Jesus joined them and they're talking about all the things that have happened and how, you know, he, there's this guy who died on the cross and then people are saying he rose from the dead and they, some have been to the tomb and his body wasn't there. And, and the, Jesus said, what, what is this you're talking about? And they say, you, you only, the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? And they explain to him, this is what's happened. And then he explains to them, this is what's happened. And he takes them through the scriptures. And then they get to the end of the day and he's walking on and they're going to stay. And they say to him, no, no, please come and stay with us. Come and talk to us some more. And so he lodged with them and ate a meal with them. And then he broke bread and bam, in that moment, they knew it was Jesus. When Jesus spoke Mary's name. The revelation came. Unbelief turned to belief in that moment. Not just, I know it's Jesus and he must be raised from the dead. He must be alive because I can see him in front of me. But she says, Rabboni, which it says in the Bible means teacher. Well, Rabbi means teacher. That's what the Pharisees called Jesus. They said, Rabbi, answer this question. Rabbi, what about this? It just means teacher. It's like us going to a teacher and saying, teacher. That's what it means. But Rabboni is slightly different. It has a higher level of meaning. And in fact, in those days, not so much now, but in those days, it meant God. So in that moment, when Jesus says, Mary, revelation comes, unbelief turns to belief, and she realizes it all makes sense. 
all the, te- all the things that I've heard, it all now makes sense that Jesus is God and is alive. And then she's given a more appropriate task. You see, all the women were given a task when they came to the tomb. It's interesting. Um, one angel said, tell them, go and tell the disciples he is risen. And he said to, one of the angels said to others, go and tell them that he will meet them in Galilee. To Mary, the angel says, go and announce the ascension. Sorry, to um, Mary, Jesus says, go and announce the ascension. You see, she'd gone to the tomb with a task of anointing a dead body with spices. She returns from the tomb with the task of announcing the ascension of the living God. That's a more appropriate task for a living God. But there's more in there. Because Jesus says, go and announce to my brethren. That's the first time he's called the disciples my brethren. Previously, do you remember he said, I don't call you servants or slaves, I call you friends. Wow. And they thought, this is amazing. Jesus is calling us friends. Now, he's calling them brethren. Because the resurrection changes everything. And they're no longer friends. They're brothers and sisters. They're adopted into the family of God. And they can call Jesus their elder brother. And even more than that, to emphasize it even more, he says, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He's not just going away. He's he's identifying that we are children of God. Unbelief causes us to see things from a human perspective. Unbelief means we look for God in the wrong place. Just as Mary was looking for a living Jesus amongst the dead. Unbelief means we attempt to do the wrong things. She was trying to anoint a body that wasn't dead but alive. You don't do that sort of thing. Unbelief means we misunderstand or misinterpret God's activities. His death on the cross did not mean there would be a body in the grave. It means that we are released from our sins. And the more we see things from a human perspective, the greater increase there is in our unbelief. Now, the good news is we don't have to wait for revelation because we've already got it. In Hebrews, in chapter 1 and verse 1, the writer says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. We have the revelation. Being in the wrong place, doing the wrong things, misunderstanding challenging circumstances in us or in others can all cause unbelief. 
But we can rise above that to belief with the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Amen.